in a relatively short period of time, we have heard about uh, four hurricanes, Harvey, hit Texas, and many other states, Irma in Florida, Maria in Puerto Rico, and now last night, Nate, that hit Alabama. We've heard about earthquakes. In the month of September alone, nearly 600 plus people were killed around the world from earthquakes. Gone. Life snuffed out in an instant. And what's fresh on our minds is Las Vegas. Senseless death and killing. In an instant, everything changes just like that. And that's just to name a few things. Just a few things. There's many more things on the news and many more things happening in the world, amazingly, that aren't on the news. I don't know about you, but those things can give us lots of cause as we come here this morning before an almighty God to lose heart, can't they? It can cause us to struggle internally and wrestle and to lose heart, to be discouraged, to cry out maybe even and say, what in the world is going on? Amen? We could find lots of reasons to lose heart today. In fact, let's just, let's just pause and just take a breath for a moment and just pray for those things, right? And just pray before Almighty God. Pray for those who have gone through tragedies. Pray for ourselves that we might not lose hope. Let's just take a moment of silence and do that. Today we look at Luke chapter 22 and the first 23 verses and it's fitting before we read them it's even in light of this of what's all going on around us it's fitting for us to to be reminded of what came right before chapter 22 right before this chapter Jesus is telling the people in light of the impending judgment that's going to come upon Jerusalem and in light of his imminent return one day to deal with all wickedness and restore all things to the way they ought to be, he, he gives this call, this, 
this cry of what we're supposed to do, that we're supposed to be those who respond, he says, by being watchful, verse 34 of chapter 21. So he tells us, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with overindulgence, which is what those two words mean, as Pastor Nick shared last week. And he says, watch yourselves so that this day, or so that the, not only will you not be weighed down by these things, but you won't get caught up in the cares of this life. He's giving them a warning. He's giving them a call. In light of everything going on, he's telling his disciples in that moment, watch yourself so that you don't fall into these in temptations and indulgences and get caught up in the cares of this life. And then he says they're supposed to pray. And they're supposed to pray, he says, this is a great verse, pray so that you may have the strength to escape all of these things that are going to come upon you. And that you may stand before the Son of God. He's speaking there of judgment. Echoes of Psalm chapter 1 where it says that the wicked on that day will not be able to stand, but we will not be counted among the wicked. We who are in Christ will be able to stand. And so he says, watch yourself. Pray, be diligent so that you're not caught up in the cares of this life. Any of you feel caught up in the cares of this life? Any of you feel anxiety this morning? Sometimes a sense of hopelessness? Do you feel the terror of being consumed with the things of this life so much so as Christians that we take our eye off of the prize, that we take our eyes off of Jesus, of whom everything is about? Do you find yourself like that this morning? I find myself there often consumed by this. And in these things we forget in being consumed so much in the cares of this life, taking our eyes off of Christ, we forget who we are. We forget whose we are. We forget that we are children of God. We forget the promises of God. Right? Well, in our text today, Jesus is going to give us a means of never forgetting. He's going to give us a means of calling us back time after time after time to the only hope that we have, which is Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to institute today in this text. So as we think about that, as you think about where you're sitting even this morning and being consumed by the things of this life, Jesus is going to offer the solution. He's going to offer the cure for our consumption, being consumed by the things of this life, and he's going to offer the cure for our forgetfulness uh, today. So let's stand as we honor God by reading his authoritative word to us. Let's stand and read the first 23 verses of chapter 22 in Luke. He says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to put him to death, for they feared the people. And then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was the, one of, who was the number, one of the number, of the number, there we go, of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how they might betray him to, how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. Isn't that great? So he consented, 
and he sought an opportunity to betray, betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had eaten, they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Let's pray. God, we need your grace today. We need you to work in this very moment to console us, to strengthen us, your people, to remind us, God, please, of who we are and whose we are. And so God, I pray in these next moments that your word would, would breathe life into us today. That we would hear them as you would intend us to hear these words. That you would cause all distractions to be laid aside. That today, God, when we leave this place, we will know that we have been with you, King Jesus that you have been lifted up and honored and glorified. We will be reminded today of what you have accomplished on our behalf that we need not fear and we need not be afraid. And so God, help us, I pray. Help me, I pray. We ask this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to look at this passage this morning. This is, a, this is a really crucial text for us this morning because it's this, this moment where Jesus is going to institute what we celebrate and we're going to celebrate today, the Lord's Supper. And I, I think it'd be important for us to see this text in three ways. So here's the three ways that we're going to try to look into this text as a whole, these 23 verses in Luke 22. Uh, we're going to look at it, first of all, from a historical perspective. 
to see the historical significance of the text, and I'll explain why that's crucial for us in a moment. We want to look at it from a redemptive perspective, from the, 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 the idea that everything in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is all about God's redemptive purposes in, in history. God has a purpose and an aim, and we'll, we'll be all the way from Genesis into Revelation chapter 19 this morning, and looking at this big purpose that God has in mind that is coming to a head in this text in some powerful, powerful ways that would have been amazing to be sitting there, and yet we do have a front row seat to it this morning, to see, to sense what it would be like to be there, but I also want us then to come down at the end as we come to this table to look at the personal significance of this story, to see in it what is it saying, what is the call of this text to you and to me, what is God what is God doing this morning in this text that will strengthen and ought to strengthen and encourage his church? That in a moment where all heck seems to be breaking loose, kind of a moment like Luke 22, we of all people ought not lose heart. and We have great reasons not to. So that's where we're going this morning. So first of all, the historical significance of this passage. Luke uh, is really good at this part. Luke is really good at showing us that, that the things, that the purposes of God are being fulfilled in a specific time, in a specific place, in specific events, in the lives of specific people. God, what we see in this passage and in the rest of this chapter and really the whole gospel, is we see God sovereignly working out his big purposes, and I think this is encouraging to us, and he does that in the lives of everyday, ordinary people, and even in their sinfulness. Isn't that amazing? One pastor calls this little moment right here one of the most extraordinary sins in all of history. The betrayal of Jesus, the Son of God. One of the most spectacular sins in history. Amazing. And so we come to this, this moment and we realize, if you were to, if we don't have time to do this this morning, but if you were to go back over all of the scriptures, you would know that the events that are happening and unfolding in Luke chapter 22 have been spoken about a long time ago. They've been prophesied about in the Old Testament. Jesus, in fact, many times in the Old Testament reiterates the very details of his own death, his own coming, and he quotes Psalms, and he quotes Jeremiah and Zechariah. I have them all listed here. We don't have time to go into every one of those this morning. But he, he, we are reminded that Jesus, Jesus is being hated, rejected, abandoned, betrayed, denied, condemned, spit upon, flogged, mocked, and killed are all things that are happening according to the purposes of God. You read Isaiah where it says, it was the Lord's will to crush him. And we're going to see the power of that in just a moment and we look at our redemption, our salvation. And, and so we see here that all of these details, behind every one of these details that God, that are being worked out, they are being worked out in the lives of real people. It's important for us to see that. These are real people and real events. In fact, it's being worked out in real time. Luke gives us some markers that tell us that these events in Luke 22, right from verse 1, these events are taking place on a specific date at a specific time 
in a specific place in history. He says that now is the day of, or the feast of unleavened bread drew near. That tells us, Luke is giving us a marker, that this is in the Jewish calendar, the month of Nisan, on the 14th day, somewhere between 3 and 5 p.m. Isn't that amazing? That you go back to Exodus chapter 12, it tells them how to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the, or the, the Passover, I should say, and it gives these details as to how they're supposed to prepare it. And so Luke, simply by making this statement, he's telling us these events that are unfolding are unfolding uh, for us in the Gregorian calendar, or the, back in that day, the, the other ca- calendar would have been March, somewhere between the end of March or April. And so basically he's telling us in a month, Nisan, or for us maybe March, the 14th day between 3 and 5 p.m., which is when they would have sacrificed the lamb and begin to prepare the meal. And then he tells us in the very next uh, verses here, when he get, we get to verse 7, he shows us that, that when they begin to celebrate, they sat down and reclined at the table, actually verse 14, they reclined at the table to begin to eat the Passover meal. Well, that's the 15th at 6 p.m. precisely is when all the households would have come together to do this. And he's showing us that this is taking place in Jerusalem, which is where the Jews, the Israelites, would have made this long pilgrimage every year. They were to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It was a, f- a feast of all feasts. It was the most significant uh, uh, moment of the year for every Jew. They would come to Jerusalem. There were probably some two million people flooding into this city that's being spoken of right this moment when all these events are happening. This place is flooded with all kinds of festivities and joy and celebration. People looking for places. They would, in fact, uh, it's, it's noted in history that they would go into the city and many of the people would open their homes so that these families, you had to have around 10 or more people together to celebrate the the Passover meal, and so these families would open their homes and give rooms out, which we also find going on right here today. They would give out a room so that people could actually celebrate the Passover uh, meal, the lamb that was slain. And so we see here, he's telling us this is a real time, a real place, and these are real people involved in this story. We see, as Pastor Nick has laid out for the last few weeks, we see here the chief priests and the scribes are present. In fact, what are they doing? You talk about looking at chaos in looming here. The very first words right out of the shoot, verses 1 and 2, is that we have these scribes and these chief priests, these experts in the law and these Jewish leaders. And what are they doing? They're scheming to put Jesus to death because they have been caught up in the cares of this life. They, are, they have sought to understand the coming of the Messiah in light of their own current circumstances and wants and desires that they have instead of understanding him for whom the Old Testament has prophesied him to be. They believe that this Messiah was to come and restore everything back to the golden days, to put Israel back on the map. To, they, you see, they were a state existing within a state, just like we as Christians, actually, ironically. Because we're not citizens of this place. We're foreigners in a foreign land. Our home is not here. It's with God in heaven one day. But they were a state within a state, and they hated it. They were under the heavy rule, Roman rule, and they hated it, and they believed the Messiah was going to come. That's, in fact, what these Jerusalem, these, these pilgrims who would have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, it was an anticipation 
of the coming of the Messiah. They anticipated that one day Messiah would come and he would restore everything to the way it would be. They had hopes and dreams and these scribes and Pharisees had those hopes and dreams that were completely off base and so Jesus shows up and they, they don't like it one bit. He's threatening their power and their control. He's threatening their, their desires and their ideals as to what ought to happen and so they are seeking to put him to death and they're trying to do it quietly. They're afraid of the crowd. Why? Because the crowd loves Jesus. We've already seen that throughout the Gospels. The crowd loves Jesus. They see him as a teacher, a prophet. But we also see in the very next verse, we see two characters enter the scene in verse 3. It says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was among the twelve. We might be tempted in this passage to say, well, if all of these events, including this one, by the way, was spoken of in the Old Testament and is the will of God, then we could hear the echo of the the New Testament uh, Roman Christians who were asking the Apostle Paul, well, how can we find fault in poor Judas? Isn't Isn't this the will of God? Have you ever had that question? If God is in charge and sovereign, Well, how can we find fault in Judas, man? If anybody could say, possibly, the devil made me do it. (laughs) Doesn't it seem clear? Satan entered into Judas. Um, But be careful about that view. Because all the players, including Judas, in the death of Christ, all of them are willing participants. Judas... It's not as if Judas was held with his arm behind his hand and forced to go betray Jesus. No, in fact, in John chapter 12, you can look there later if you want, but John chapter 12, verse 6, John, who's looking back on this day and these events, he records that Judas, they had the moment where the woman was anointing Jesus' feet with this really uh, expensive perfume, right? And what does Judas say? Judas steps up and says, this is an outrage, right? He's all upset this, this perfume should have been sold because it was expensive and it should be, uh, should be given to the poor. And what does John say about Judas? Now, John didn't know this in this moment. He's saying this in, ret- he's looking back, right, 2020. He's like, he goes, Judas did not say this because he cares about the poor. But John actually says it's because he is a thief. And he was constantly dipping into the money bags of the disciples and stealing the money. He was the manager of the money and he was stealing money. He was a thief. Judas was not a good man. So he was among them, but he certainly was not with them. And so it's not as though Satan had to force his way into Judas's life to commit this most spectacular sin of betraying the Son of God. Judas long ago had thrown the door open wide and he was a... He was a sinful, willing participant in this whole thing. He had long ago determined, even before this, to turn Jesus in. And so Judas, we see this man, Judas, who among them, he goes away, he confers with them. They're excited. Isn't that a great little pass? They're glad, right? Yes, we finally have this Jesus. We finally see it all coming together. We're going to pay Judas. He's going to turn him in. And Judas, just like the Pharisees or the scribes and the teachers of the law that, or the, the chief priests, he's looking to do this in, in quietness. He doesn't want doesn't to make a scene, doesn't want to do it with the crowd present. It says, in the absence of the, 
the crowd. Judas was looking for a moment, which is crucial for us to understand in this passage when we get to verse 7. So then Jesus tells the disciples, as the day had come to celebrate the Passover, to go, Peter and John, two more real characters in the story, to go and prepare this meal so that they could celebrate the Passover together, right? And notice that Jesus only tells Peter and John, and notice he doesn't say where they're supposed to get this room. Obviously, they're supposed to go to Jerusalem, which is where this would have taken place. But he, he, the, the disciples say, well, where are we supposed to, you know, what, where are we supposed to do this at, right? That's what, he's, that's what they're asking in verse 7. Um, or verse 8, he says, go and prepare for us the Passover. And they say, well, where, will we, where would you have us prepare it? And what does Jesus say? He doesn't just say, hey, go to this place. I got it all lined up. There's a room, you know, in such and such places. Why would Jesus keep this kind of secretive, in fact, set up these really crazy little, I mean, this actually is really a crazy thing. He says, he says, here's how you'll know where to go. You go into the city and you look for a man carrying a jar of water. Now, friends, this is a very different day than where we live, right? In that day, men did not carry jars of water. It was extremely rare. Like, that is not what men did. Women, this is John 4, right, the woman at the well, women were the ones who would go with the jars and, and get water from the well and bring it back to their homes. This was not something that men did in that day. So for Jesus, he's giving them this very obvious sign. You'll know, he says, where should you go? Just go into the city. You're going to see a guy <laughs> carrying a jar of water. Walk up to him and ask him. He's going to tell you where the room's at. It's like crazy, right? They couldn't miss it, however. And so they do. They go, and this, this, this man is there carrying a jar of water. They go up to him. This whole little interaction unfolds. He tells them where the guest room is, and they go, and they find it exactly as Jesus had said. You see, in history, in time, there was a specific time in which Jesus would be crucified, in which he would be betrayed. And this moment was not the moment. If Judas would have known where they were going to meet, this was the perfect setup. This is just what he was looking for, right? To go to a quiet place. They'd be up in the upper room. And so Jesus keeps these details from him. He sends two of the disciples to a place that they don't even know where they're going until they get there. And the room is prepared, and they begin to prepare the Passover meal, all the different aspects of the meal. They begin to set it all up. And then later on, Jesus brings the rest of the disciples to join them and to celebrate the Passover meal. And so we, we see all these little details. You see God working in the backdrop of every one of these details. And in fact, you see in Judas's life, I hear, and, and the chief priests and the, the scribes, I hear I, Psalm chapter 57, where he says that the wicked man digs a pit in order to ensnare and trap the righteous, and yet he falls into it himself. That's what, that's what happens here. Judas and these chief priests and these scribes, they think that they are working their will, that they're going to get Jesus, that they're gonna, and, and the whole time they're digging a pit that they themselves, by God's working, is, they're going to fall into their own trap. They're going to be the ones made the fool at the end of the day. You see, all of these details are being worked out in the lives of real people, real sinners, real circumstances, real places in real time. 
These aren't just fairy tale type details, but they're real details that took place in history. All of these things took place for one specific purpose, however. God, in the midst of the lives of these people, and ultimately, even today, in the midst of our lives, his church, God is moving and working in everything in order to bring about our redemption, in order to save us. All of these details are there for a redemptive purpose. He's, he's using and working in and through the lives of people to accomplish his redemption in all of history, the salvation of a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation of the world. This is what God is doing now, and this is what this story is ultimately all about. It's about what God is doing to gather a people to himself. We find in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, in verse 15, God promised that there would be a, an offspring that would come through the woman whom Satan would bruise his, his heel, but this offspring, this seed, would stomp on and crush his head. And we see throughout all of Scripture, we see God making promises, raising up a people. We see him doing this with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. We see in Genesis chapter 12, he makes a promise to Abraham that through him and through his offspring, that all the people of the world will be blessed. We see the, in, to Moses in Exodus, we see him make a covenant with Moses. We see him covenant with David. And ultimately in Jeremiah 31, we see him talk about a new covenant that was to come. God is doing all of, working out all of these details in the lives of people. This is what your whole Old Testament is about. He's working these details out in the lives of real people in real time in order to preserve a people so that there would be one ultimate outcome, Jesus Christ, that he would come and that he would be our hope. He would be the Savior. And so we see in this text, we get to verse 14, and there's this incredible anticipation here that Jesus in this moment is going to share some details of the story. He's going to show that he himself, this very person setting before them in flesh, is the fulfillment of God's promises that he has made in the Old Testament. That he himself, in fact, in this moment, is the Passover lamb. And so we, this, the, the backdrop of this passage of verse 14, it says that the hour had come, he reclined at the table, the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal. Jesus himself is eager, and it's hard to capture this. Like, it's not just, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to be here, I'm excited about this. He's, he's this is like, been anticipated everything comes down to this and he's he's like he couldn't wait for this moment to eat this meal with them to declare and put himself forward to them as the fulfillment of God's promises and so we have this moment the backdrop of this in history and a redemption history is Exodus chapter 12 it, there's probably a no story, at least in my life, in the Bible that is more powerful than Exodus 12 and the Passover story. The Israelites have been slaves for 470 or 430 years in Egypt. 
And God had come and sent a man named Moses, raised him up to set the people free. And Pharaoh would have nothing of it. You, you may know the story, but you may not know the story. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he would have nothing of it. He, he had enslaved God's people for all those years, and he was getting harder on them and harder on them. God sends a redeemer, Moses, to, to set them free. They have this little face-off. They have this little clash, and God demonstrates through 10 plagues that he sends to the Egyptians. He demonstrates by degree, by degree, by degree, that he is the sovereign king with no rivals, not Pharaoh, not Pharaoh's army, not any other army. In fact, in Exodus, it tells us that the reason why God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the reason for this clash is to show both his own people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians, that he says that they will, this is a refrain in, in Exodus, that they will know that I am the Lord. And so we have this face-off, and it gets to the very final plague, the last plague. Pharaoh will not let the people go, and so God declares, I will kill all the firstborn sons throughout Egypt, the firstborn males, the firstborn of, the, of their animals, their livestock, the firstborn of everything. I'm going to wipe it out. But he's also going to save his own people. And so he says to Moses, you go and tell the people to kill a lamb, to take the blood of that lamb and to wipe the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel in their house. So that when the death angel comes at night, this night, when the death angel comes, can you imagine being a child in that day? I mean, seriously, can you imagine? In fact, if you're a firstborn here tonight, today, imagine being the firstborn son, an Israelite, and Moses is instructing the heads of these houses who go back to their home and say, look, um, look kids, here's what the deal is tonight. God, the death angel's coming over. God is going to kill the firstborn in Egypt. And our only hope is this lamb. And the blood that is going to be spilt from this lamb placed on the doorpost. If we don't put the blood there, when the death angel comes, you, son, you will most certainly die. Talk about a lesson, right? And you imagine each of these homes... Slitting the throat of a lamb. Talk about a word, a, a picture for kids, right? This is, this is really, really a PG, right? Slitting the throat of this lamb and putting the blood there. I don't think in Egypt on that night there was anybody discussing, aren't there more ways to be saved? Right in our day, we're like, is it really only Jesus? I doubt they were having those arguments. It was dire and urgent and serious. It was only the blood of that lamb that would save them, period. And as far as we know, everyone obeyed. It doesn't say that any of the Israelites perished. But just imagine being that firstborn son, that the obedience of his father and his mother to obey what God said to do would be that firstborn son's salvation, right? That's, that's incredible. Just 
hard to comprehend such a thing. Jesus in this moment, in fact, God said in Exodus chapter 12, don't ever forget this night. Don't ever forget it. Every year at this very time, God said, I want you to, to celebrate this Passover. I want you to celebrate the night where the death angel came and passed over your house, having seen the blood on the, on the doorpost, passed over your house and spared you. And by this means, God set you free from slavery in Israel. And they walked out of Israel, they, or out of Egypt. And not only did they walk out of Egypt that, after that whole event, the firstborn all dying, the people urged them to go and gave them riches to go out, right? If you read the whole story, it's 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 phenomenal story. But what Jesus is going to show us tonight is what was is he's going to institute this in light of the fulfillment of what the Passover meal was supposed to be. It pointed to and they and God wanted them to never forget this moment. So for year after year after year after year, every single year at the same time, they celebrated the Passover as, is, as they are doing in Luke chapter 22. And yet Jesus is sitting at this table and he's about to turn everything on its head. He says, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it un again until it is finished or fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's telling them, I'm going to eat this. I've earnestly desired for this moment, but it'll be the last time that I eat this Passover meal with you. So they're sitting around the table, and if you know the details, there's all kinds of details as to how the Passover meal and the table would be set and the four different glasses of wine. All these things are happening and Jesus begins to speak, and he says, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, this is the way the Passover meal began, the head of the house would stand up and give thanks, and then they would drink out of the first cup. And Jesus gives thanks, it says, and he took this cup, and even in this, he changes the protocol. He breaks protocol of the Passover meal. It says he took this one cup. And it says, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, again he reiterates, I will not drink the fruit of the vine again until, until the kingdom of God comes. Meaning in its fullness. Until the kingdom of God comes. I think there's significance in that one cup. They wouldn't have done that. They all would have had their own cup. They would have drank. They had four cups of wine. But they passed around this one cup interesting. I think, I don't know, there's nothing we could deduce from that except that we know there's a break of protocol. I think there's probably something to say about the unity that we will have, the, the sense of oneness. I don't know. Could be. But he passes the cup around and he makes this comment that he won't drink it, nor will he eat again. He won't eat this Passover meal. He will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That is, in its fullness. You see, the Passover was a picture of a bigger reality that Jesus is going to define for us. And Jesus, in essence, is saying that until he comes again, he is fasting from this meal. He's not eating or drinking. He's not celebrating this meal again, and he will not do it until that day 
when all of those whom he will bring in by the blood that he has shed on the cross are brought in and then the end comes. Till that day in the new heaven and the new earth where we will be reunited with Christ and we will together with him celebrate what, what Revelation 19 verses 7 and 9 called the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the day Jesus is thinking of. The day when it is complete. When all of his children have been brought in to the family and then the end comes. Jesus returns, a new heaven and a new earth, and they feast on that day. Revelation 19 is a great one to read this afternoon, verses 7 to 9. This beautiful day where we will commune and eat this meal again with Jesus in his presence. But until then, Jesus says, it's not happening. Gives us a different um, understanding of when we pray the Lord's Prayer, right? Your, Your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you pray that prayer, you're basically, we're praying, Lord Jesus, even now, through us, let us be the ones who bring in the harvest that the end will come. Let your will be done. Let it be complete. Let everyone who will believe, believe. Let us take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That your kingdom would come in fullness and in power. Well, Jesus then turns in this last part of this uh, text And he institutes a means for us to never forget this moment. To never forget what he has done. And in doing so, he puts himself forward as the fulfillment of what the Passover, which was a shadow. The Passover was just a temporary gig that pointed to an ultimate reality. And Jesus is that reality. And Jesus then, it says, he takes the bread. When he had given thanks, it says he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body. Given for you. Do this, that is, eat it in remembrance of me. Remember me. I don't know what this would be like for the disciples because Jesus hasn't died yet. We have the benefit of celebrating the Lord's Supper today looking back at what's already happened. They're hearing these things for the first time. And we know that they were completely clueless. They didn't get it. We know that the Gospels tell us, in fact, John tells us, that it wasn't until they saw the resurrected Christ that the light bulb went on. And in fact, Jesus even tells them in John at this very meal in John 13, he says, I'm telling you these things, including the the denial of Peter, Peter's denial of Christ. I'm telling you these things, he says, so that afterwards you'll believe me. (laughs) Right? So he's telling them these things in advance so that when it unfolds, the light bulb will go on and they'll know. And so here they're celebrating this in advance. Jesus is, is in essence, giving a, a few hours anyway of prophesying about these events and the very enactment of it. But he's taking the bread and he's saying, this bread is my body and it is going to be given for you And when you eat this, eat it in remembrance of me. I don't know if there's a passage, and there are, but uh, I think this is one of the passages, this one phrase in this text is probably one of the most controversial phrases in church history. (laughs) Some of you are looking at me like, what? The phrase, this is my body. (laughs) I don't know if you realize, like, throughout church history, there's been a debate uh, about what this means. 
I'm just going to clear, clear it up for you today because it really is not hard. <laughs> You're like, yeah, you should question that too. But, um, but there are those who in the medieval times in the Roman Catholicism who begin to say that the words, this is my body, means that when we eat this bread, when, when the, the priest prays over the elements, that there's this trans, like this transformation that happens that came to be known as transubstantiation. Don't, don't remember the word. But there was this transformation that happens that when it is consecrated or prayed over, that the bread actually became the physical body of Jesus. That when we eat of it, we're actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now there's some problems with that, uh, especially uh, in light of the fact that they saw it as Jesus being sacrificed over again, which is really dangerous because Jesus was sacrificed for sin, the Bible says, once and for all, final. There is no more sacrifice. So to believe in that way is to believe that we are, is in essence, is to believe that we're crucifying Christ over and over again every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is, which is quite crazy and I think uh, could even border on a bit blasphemous um, and outside of Scripture. But then there became, in the Reformation, another view. And that is to say that, the, that in the bread and the wine, that, Jesus, that, that these elements didn't turn into the physical body and blood of, wine, or blood of Christ, but, but they spiritually did. It was uh, called consubstantiation, another word there, where it means that, it was that the Spirit of God, the presence of God was in and around uh, the elements so that as we ate them, the presence of God was there, the very real presence of God was there. And uh, so you, you may uh, know some of these, th- these uh, arguments or not, but the important thing is to realize what these readers would have understood this to mean in their day. What would a Jewish, these Jewish men who were in this moment sitting around this table, what would they have understood as they're eating this bread and drinking this cup? They would have understood that this isn't the actual physical body of Christ, but that he is giving them a powerful symbol, right? He's giving them a powerful symbol that reminds them of the reality, which is Christ. Now, they don't fully understand this either, right? But we do, because Paul is going to share this with us later on, and the church is going to celebrate this for thousands upon thousands of years. And so this was a normal way that the Jewish mind would have thought because they had all kinds of symbolism. And I think sometimes, especially in our day, we think that symbols aren't very powerful, right? We think that, well, if it's not the real thing, it's not powerful. But it is powerful. Symbols are very powerful. If you don't think so, just look at the modern, the, the, the current controversy over standing or kneeling at the flag. <laughs> you don't think symbols are powerful. They're very powerful, aren't they? The way we understand things are, is very powerful and grips us and moves us. And God's grace, what it came to be known in the way Baptists typically understand the Lord's Supper, is that God's grace is in us taking this, that we do receive the grace of God. We do uh, receive God's in- the encouragement of God. We are blessed in taking it because Christ is present here in this place as his people gather together. And these, these symbols of Christ's body 
which absorbed the wrath of God for us, and the cup, which is the, represents the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins. These are powerful symbols that remind us when we eat them physically, and when we drink them, it reminds us of what Christ has done for us. And it's a means of encouragement. That is the grace that you receive today when you come forward and take communion. That is his grace to us, is that encouragement. In fact, it gets us down. He says, this bread, it says, likewise, after, the, after they'd eaten the bread, it says, likewise, they took the cup, saying, this is a cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's what had been prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, that God would make a new covenant one day, and it would be cut in the blood of his son, of God's son. It says this cup, when you drink it, it is, it is the, the, my blood poured out. It's the new covenant for the forgiveness of your sins, as Paul will say it later in Corinthians chapter 11. And so when we eat the bread, we were reminded of Jesus' death. And just like those firstborn sons on the night of the Passover, we too here today were reminded that our only hope of being rescued from God's righteous judgment is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. It's the fact that in his body, he absorbed the punishment and the wrath for sin that you deserve. And his blood that was poured out spilt on that cross is for the forgiveness of your sins. As Jeremiah 31 says, it's a better promise because not, not only will our sins be passed over, covered over as the word atonement means, but Jeremiah 31 proclaims that the, in the death of our son, the shedding of, of God's son, the shedding of his blood, our sins are removed. They're gone, remembered no more, completely and utterly taken care of. And this is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. And so, what does this mean for us today? We're going to come here in just a moment and celebrate. Notice what he says here. He says, this is my body that is given for you. This is the cup of the new covenant that has been poured out for you. It's for you. And he says, do this when we do it in remembrance. We are prone to forget, aren't we? We forget easily, don't you? We forget things. We forget history. We forget important things. We get caught up in the cares of this life, and we forget. And Jesus says, this, when you eat this meal, this is a means of Jesus' church to remind itself constantly of what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross. But it's not only that. It's a reminder that our God is faithful to fulfill every single promise that he's ever made. That's what this reminds us of as well, right? The very fact that Jesus is sitting there as the fulfillment of these promises and not only that, but the promises that are to come one day when the kingdom is fully here, he's, he, it's a reminder that our God is faithful. In the midst of chaos, even the death of his own son, 
God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And so we gain encouragement and confidence, even today as a church, in the midst of all the chaos that it seems like is going on around us, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. We have a God who is faithful. We have a God who has made promises with us. We have a God who has sent his son. We, of all people, ought to be encouraged. We ought not lose heart. We grieve and we weep and we pray, but we don't do so as those who lose heart, right? Because our God is faithful. He's not going to let us down. One day, one day he will fulfill all of his promises and purposes, and one day we will, we will be with him at that great banquet, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in fact, when Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul institutes the Lord's Supper, Paul takes almost every element out of what Jesus says here. You might think he adds to it a little bit, but he doesn't. He says, on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he says he took bread. Having given thanks, he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. First Corinthians 11, Paul says, and then afterwards he took the cup, saying, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Do this. Drink it. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And then he gives a warning, which is actually at the end of this, this, this moment, right? He gives a warning. He says, be careful. In fact, he says you should examine yourself before you come and take communion. Examine your life. If you look at the last few verses I didn't read for us, what happens? They're sitting around the table, and Jesus gives this very somber and sobering moment where it should be this climax, right? He's here. It's fulfilled. And then he says, but the hand of the one who will betray me is sitting at this table. And then you go back to chapter 21 and the warning, pray lest you be caught up in the cares of this life. Pray lest you, be, you not escape the events that are going to be taking place. In essence, what Paul is saying by saying examine yourself, don't take, eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner. What Paul's saying is don't become Judas, right? It's a warning. We, we have an example right in our text, and, and Paul's really saying, examine ourselves. Don't, don't come to the same table that the other disciples came to. Don't come in an unworthy way. And he, in fact, says, you will drink and heap judgment upon yourself. That's powerful, right? And so when we come to the table, we, as believers in Jesus Christ, we come celebrating with joy and anticipation. In fact, Paul says, as often as you eat it, you proclaim the Lord's death which is the blood on the doorpost, our only hope of salvation, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until it's fulfilled one day in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what Paul describes it as. So I encourage you today, even as Pastor Nick has already said, everyone here is welcome to come to this table so long as you believe these things. Do you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? absorbing the wrath you deserve in his body? Do you believe that the blood that he shed was shed for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you believe that? If you believe that, you come. You come with joy. You come and pray that God would prepare your heart to receive the blessing and the confidence that comes in remembering what he's done for you. But if not, maybe for someone here today, 
Maybe today is the day. Because this table also calls you to consider today whether or not you do believe. And maybe today is the day the Spirit of God is working in your heart, in your life, and calling you to repent of your sins, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of the Father, to believe in what he has done in his death on the cross. And if that's happening in you today, I just want to invite you, come and tell somebody about that today. Come and talk to Pastor Nick or myself, and then you come to this table, and you thank God for what he's done today. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is with great joy that we celebrate this supper today. That we come to this table as believers trusted in Jesus Christ, our only hope, our only Savior. Trusted in his body that was given for us, absorbing the wrath we deserve. And we've trusted in his shed blood on the cross as our only means of forgiveness. God, let us come. Let us be thankful. Let us celebrate um, what Christ has done. And let us be reminded today in the midst of chaos let us be reminded that you are a faithful God. You will be, you've been faithful in the past. You will be faithful in the future. And you are faithful right now here in this place in our lives. And you are working out all of your plans for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name.